0: And bye, please, gentlemen. Here we go. All right, here it is, James. Shh. shh. Settle down. Six three one five
1: seven. One, two, three, four. Everybody, it's Scott Weinberg. Welcome to a bonus episode of 80s All Over, recorded exclusively and especially for our patrons, our de- devoted donators, call it what you will, uh, and have some mildly bad news. My illustrious co host, the great Drew McQueenie, had a small but not serious uh, problem, pulled us through his back out, and uh, Bobby, our great producer, and I said, Drew, don't even worry about the bonus episode. I'm going to step up and do it all by myself. But no, not by myself. Finally, after two and a half years of episodes, we finally have the one, the only, the movie geek, Star Wars addict, music genius, Mr. Mr. Bobby Roberts. Dude, come on. <laughs> Everybody, okay. Everybody all right. should get an intro. Everybody should deserves an intro like that. No, no, no. Or,
0: I, I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with it, and I will say thank you. I won't do the thing that uh, so many people of our generation do, which is as soon as you hear a compliment, you immediately throw up as many shields as possible to try and ward it off, as opposed to just accepting it like a normal human being would and being grateful and thankful.
1: I've said it many times on my Twitter, and Drew and I have said it on the show many times. If it wasn't for your skill, 80s all over would sound like a two-hour phone conversation, and that might be fun, but it would not be a good podcast. So, to uh, to all our listeners out there, if uh, if you love the show, hit Bobby Roberts PDX on the Twitter and thank him because he makes it magic. He really does. Well, th- um,
0: thank you for that. But before you do that, uh, make sure to send uh, like like you just mentioned a uh, uh, a get well note to Drew because back back problems are the worst. You I, it, being able not being able to move. Period. Knowing that uh, the merest twitch of your body is going to send waves of agony up and down your
1: spine is hell. We were, we were, we were kind of, uh, not panicking, but we were getting down to the wire. We were going to do another mailbag episode, then we thought maybe we'd do a commentary, and then I thought, well, why, don't I, why don't we focus on Bobby's Wheelhouse? Bobby, if you don't know, is a phenomenal DJ. He has uh, a whole series of albums called Geek Remixed, And that's how I first became friends with Bobby. I wrote an article about his work for Cinematical. And uh, I still, to this day, absolutely love it. If you like 80s, 90s, and contemporary movies, TV themes mixed with the ultra funk, you have to Google Geek Remixed and listen to those albums. Thank us later. So then I thought, Bobby is a music guy. What can we do for this bonus episode? Music oriented. And I said, Bobby, let's have a draft of our top 10 80s soundtracks. Now, Bob as a music guru, why don't you explain to our listeners who might not know the specific difference between a soundtrack and a score? Uh,
0: The soundtrack, there's really not too much of a difference. The soundtrack is what gets released uh, in the stores. Uh, This is how I've always broken it down. Um, A soundtrack can be a, a film score, or at least selections from a film score. Most often, you don't Actually, get the entirety of a film score released simply because there's so much of it that is like you know incidental music, underscore, uh, themeless, just sort of stuff that plays underneath action. That if you actually put it on an album, uh, even people who enjoy this sort of music would be like, "Why? Why is this here? Yeah, why am I, I listening don't need the to incidental, this?"
1: Incidental, plank it down the hall, and, and I'm glad that you said it because the simple answer usually is, "Oh, well, a score is an album of the of the orchestral score." And a soundtrack is an album of singles that are on in the. And that is kind of in a in a in a in a very flat way that is true. But your way is like every film has a soundtrack. You know what the soundtrack is in a film? It's everything: the music, the sound design, the dialogue. That is the soundtrack. The score is what the the composer brings.
0: Yeah, and and sometimes and sometimes the soundtrack and the score do intertwine. Like um you can have a movie where, you know, I'm just pulling a name out of a hat. Like Jerry Goldsmith sat down and composed an orchestral score for something, but as part of that score there are still, you know, bits of pop music. John Barry was really good at this with the Bond movies, where he would compose a score and he knew that there would be a pop act coming in to sing the intro. And what he would do is work with that pop act to sort of of interweave the melody from that pop song into his score, um, and so you would have a blend of the two. So sometimes, even on those original score soundtrack albums, you would still have a pop song or two uh, sort of layered in. So I mean, soundtrack and score typically those phrases are are kind of interchangeable. Uh, and if you say soundtrack and you mean score, uh, most people, unless they're really pedantic, aren't going to call you on it. They just want to. They just want to get ahead to talking about the music. Like we're about to do right now a clearly i picked the
1: right topic for this for our guest host <laughs> uh uh and b a, a, they still do it to this day bond fans will notice that in the score uh, you know the the uh, the the opening theme song to any bond movie is a big deal that's like part and parcel of the whole bond experience is who's doing the song and and what will the opening look like and, and you'll always hear any whoever composes a score for a james bond film generally manages to wend that that theme song into the score somewhere and that that always is fun so for the sake of this podcast episode we're going to say that the soundtrack is either a collection of songs or an album that is mostly songs um and bobby if you would uh like to get us rolling with your well this will be number 10 but we each did five so
0: yeah, we we each pick five. Eventually, we're going to end up at a list that is that is ten. And we're probably going to trip each other up because I would imagine one or more. yeah, us- we we
1: have not checked these yet, just like we do with Drew. We have not double checked these. And I would like to send a shout out to another partial inspiration for this whole podcast episode is Edgar Wright's wonderful baby driver, which has such a so it's a, such a wonderful job of incorporating music not only into the like songs, into the score, but into the attitude and the vibe. Uh, And I can just, just give me a few words as a music geek, Bobby, give me your thoughts on baby driver. Oh, well baby
0: driver, uh, hit a particular sweet spot for me. Uh, like you, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm a guy who uh, spent a lot of his free time, uh, throwing break beats and '90s style hip hop production at, at soundtracks and scores and and TV themes and all that stuff for a very long time in the two thousands. Um, so to watch a movie, whose entire aesthetic is built around essentially the same sort of thing I had been doing for about 10 years. And then to watch the film as it was playing right around like the 35 minute mark, start to remix itself as it is running. Like, even if he hadn't executed it well, um, and he executed it brilliantly, um, that would have worked on me like gangbusters no matter what. The the fact there's of the stuff film in that movie at-
1: that I don't even get because I'm kind of a neophyte when it comes to music. I know what I like, and I know it's hard to do good music, but I would I'm not able to articulate what you just said about the music, and I get exactly what you mean. Uh, the way the music kind of doubles back on itself. I can't wait to see Baby Driver again. It should be on Blu-ray soon. Or it is it is now maybe I don't know. By the time you hear this, it might be tonight. <laughs> well, and, and my and my thing is like,
0: it, it's a film that um, it's a good thing that uh, technically it works exactly the way it's meant to, and that it does all all the tricky formatic stuff that it's doing as well as it does because I do believe that like on an emotional level, it's probably the least of Edgar Wright's films, which probably. It probably says something about the fact that it's the most successful of his films domestically is the one that actually packs the least amount of punch, but is the flashiest.
1: Yeah, I would say we're getting off on a tangent here, but maybe emotional punch. But I think in some ways, I think it's one of his best movies. I I, I do like the stuff. I do like his, uh, you know, Nick Frost stuff a little bit more. It's just a little warmer and goofier. But I really I think Baby Driver will hold up uh, to the standard test of time. And let's just let's just get rolling. What's your number 10? What's your number five?
0: Hold on. I, I do want to add a couple caveats to this list that we're about to put together. One, I hope that you have alternates on deck, because I guarantee one of us is going to pick something that the other one wants. Uh,
1: so you, better, you better have alternates All right, ready. I have alternates ready in that I could pick any John Hughes soundtrack I want if we have doubles. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Okay, all right. Uh, two, this is going to be the degree of
0: difficulty. I don't know if you're ready for this, but this is the, deg- the degree of difficulty. You only get to pick one John Williams score. Since I just said you can only have one John Williams. This was tough because it came down to a question uh, for me between Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, which I consider to be the perfect action movie. The only film that has ever gotten close to it in terms of, uh, you know, the combination of of editing uh Set piece design, uh, soundtrack, cinematography—the only thing that has ever gotten close to it um, is *Mad Max: Fury Road*. Uh, but of course, John Williams' score elevates everything.
1: So it's to pick a favorite John Williams score is to like pick like you know a favorite limb for Christ's sake. Which one do you want me to cut off? <laughs> but um, you know, *Raiders* is just pure. Beauty. I could hear any note, any any beat, any three notes, and I'll know exactly where it is. I love so much not just the main theme. There's it's like that's the great thing about John Williams, is you think of Jaws, you think of Star Wars, you think of these movies, and you're like, oh, that one great theme. No. Star Wars has like eight great themes. <laughs> you know, Empire Strikes Back has 12. I mean, all his scores. Think of all the, the the playful stuff on the beach in Jaws. It's not it's not just dunk 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 dunk. There's some brilliant music in there. Uh, anyway. Great pick. Well that's not that wasn't my pick. Oh. That wasn't my
0: pick. See, it was between Rages of the Lost Ark, which I which I almost picked, and what I ended up actually picking, which is E. T. the extraterrestrial. <laughs>
1: Have of a bitch, bastard. You eat the John Williams double twist.
0: <laughs> the, reason I, the reason I picked E.T. over Raiders of the Lost Ark um, is because E.T. has to do so much more heavy lifting than Raiders does. For as great as the score to Raiders is, and the soundtrack album is, the soundtrack to E.T. is doing so much of Spielberg's work for him. Like, that film... I mean, it, it, it's a great film, and it's a great entry into Spielberg's uh, filmography, but that film loses at least 40% of its emotional power without John Williams's score underneath it. And there, there's a reason that Williams has, for like the last 30 years, closed out almost all of his concerts with the last 15 minutes of that movie. In order, like he just basically so at some concerts, he actually puts the last 15 minutes of the film up on the screen behind him. At others, he just runs through it, but he basically just drops the last 15 minutes of ET as it was written, as it was scored. And I believe the story goes that uh, Steven Spielberg actually asked John to write it and then edited the movie to the score in order to make sure that punch, that power was there. Um, and it's seriously some of the most uplifting musical, magical stuff he has ever written in his life, which is saying something, talking about John Williams. So that's why I ended up having to pick E.T., because it's not just the sugary saccharine stuff that you remember. There's some
1: dark, you know, close encounters-y stuff in that score. It's a really rousing score, too. It's a little bit creepy when the kids are getting away, and when they do finally get away, like, that whole bit where the cops are chasing them, the agents are chasing them, a lot of people don't remember. That whole sequence is fantastic there's like there's great like cross-cutting between action and 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 you know uh, f- action in the floor and background really cut well close and really cool stunts that whole chase is great and that music is it's like playful but also slightly serious because these are kids who are into some serious business they're not messing around about this
0: there are moments on the score in which uh he gets sort of scary and ho- like like when et is basically a white desiccated dog turd you know that sequence
1: oh god yeah
0: dude it gave me nightmares you don't gotta tell me (laughs) the music underneath that like a lot of people don't quite notice it on first or second listen because et is so disturbing in those seconds but if you go back and you listen to the soundtrack during those moments like john williams is helping you out quite a bit because there's some weird
1: dark nastiness to the score that's the difference between that's what because any any film fan can tell when a score is um cumbersome, or or intrusive, that's the word I'm looking for. I, I, you know, when it's like, oh, I should be scared here, dun-dun-dun-dun! Like, that to me is the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest version of John Williams. John Williams would never lead you that way. John Williams would take you in the other direction and then put a dark little thread underneath it and then bring you back to the scary, I mean... Oh, he's just—he's just—he's the, the best ever. I'm grateful to have grown up on John Williams scores, like um, like any like my somebody of my dad's age would have grown up uh, on Bernard Herrmann or somebody else. I'm just grateful to that I've gotten to witness all that. Um, now, my list—I I did a little rejiggering while you were chatting because I realized that you have chosen more maybe score-oriented, where I kept mine to strictly soundtrack, st- uh, meaning multiple songs like oh like to when i was in the 80s to me a soundtrack was the mixtape uh I, I cheated on my first one i had to choose a musical obviously because so what did i choose bob what, what musical did i take 1986 oh 86 i did not yeah. think that was the musical you were going to pick
0: because i got one on my list uh and Little i might old
1: shop of horrors
0: that's a great call Beat me all night long <laughs>
1: That's right boy you can do it be me see that is a great oh, call. man it uh if you want to talk about gateways this movie opened me up to a what a musical for me you know there were some I I liked grease but I was too young for grease so I didn't really get it and you know there were other musicals where I liked certain scenes and certain uh musical numbers but then was bored throughout and then I finally like, oh, my God, here's a musical that I, I like every moment of this, even this sweet romantic stuff. I'm cool with that. You know, it was such a revelation for me that, that you know, it wasn't just that it was a musical in my wheelhouse. that it was also introducing me to, uh, you know, new things that like, I didn't know much about R&B before I, I was 15 or 14 when I saw it. Um, and, and I love those three girls, the Greek chorus girls in that movie. And they're were, they were so great on the soundtrack. Every song on that, uh, that skid row, it's somewhere that's green and suddenly Seymour. It's just beautiful. And it is kind of a cheat because the soundtrack is, you know, mostly based on a, on a stage uh, uh, score. But fuck it. My list. That is
0: not a cheat at all. And uh, interesting little uh, trivia note regarding the, uh, the doo-wop Greek chorus. Uh, two-thirds of that Greek chorus ended up being the, uh, the female leads of television sitcom Martin. I know Tachina Arnold was one. Who was the other?
1: Tisha Campbell was the other one. Uh, I can't wait to revisit this movie with uh, with Drew in a couple of years. It's just – I'll just uh, – to, just to use the pedantic – if you've never seen Little Shop of Horrors, stop what you're doing and put it on now and thank us later. You will have a ball. The special effects are great. The cast is great. We won't even tell you what great comedians have cameos because it's more fun <laughs> as a surprise. <laughs> No, no, we probably
0: should because there's I doubt there's anyone listening who I'm going to say it like this. There's probably a good 25 to 35 percent of our listening audience whose introduction to both Steve Martin and Bill Murray happened in this movie.
1: Oh, that can't be. Okay, fair
0: enough. And what a crazy introduction, especially to those two comedians in this movie doing what they're doing like that's nuts. All right. What's your second pick? All right. Well, my second pick. uh, I want to make sure now that I beat you to it because when when you said musical, I thought I'm going to cut you off right now. You took my number one. I bet you I did because I'm picking the Blues Brothers. Damn it! Picking the Blues Brothers for the same reason you picked uh, Little Shop of Horrors, because uh, it was a gateway for me. I saw the Blues Brothers when I was very young, and my mom was very much into Motown. Uh, so when I was growing up, like I had the sounds of Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, uh, you know, the, the Supremes, all those great Motown acts. Those were sort of just bubbling around in my, uh, in my music DNA when I was four or five years old and just starting to f- realize what music could be. And that was right around the time that I saw the Blues Brothers uh, for the first time. So, like, getting a sense of where, like, you know, the Stax era R and B, that sort of stuff, the the old blues that R and B was built out of, I didn't really get a sense of it. And, and granted, being introduced to that via uh, a pair of Saturday Night Live comedians isn't maybe the most ideal
1: way to be introduced, but an introduction is an introduction. No, I think it's a beautiful introduction. That's exactly how it should be done. It's these guys are you know, these are a bunch of white guys who are doing music that was created by black artists and if they're going to go out and make a film that celebrates this music, you damn sure better include those black artists and they did. They're they're everywhere in that movie and the great thing about Blues Brothers is I never, as a kid, I was indifferent to the musical numbers. Fun, funny. The rawhide bit is great. I love uh, everybody. But to me, it was all about the dry comedy, the chase the explosion, the mall, you know, Carrie Fisher with the rocket launcher. And then it must have been my fourth, eighth, twelfth time seeing it in my twenties, where I just said, not only do I love this movie for, since I'm a child, but this is an accomplished musical. This is a really cleverly put together musical. This like, they had to chart out where can we get musical numbers that would actually fit the plot. And not have them, they want them to be germane to the plot. It's not a musical where everybody drops what they're doing, starts dancing, and, you know, it's like some huge number. And uh, they, they incorporate it into the story. And every single note, is perfect in this movie. I absolutely love it. Uh, this was your pick, though, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, well, it, it was my <laughs> pick. Like, um, I, and I wanted to ask you this about Little Shop of Horrors, and I'll ask you uh, this about Blues Brothers as well, but is there like a specific single song that stands out above the others for you?
1: Well, you know, everybody gets those... Everybody has their... It's always very personal and very specific for everybody else, for every different person, but you get like those... The chills moment. Where you you almost brings tears to your eyes because it like distills everything that you love about a movie in like one crystal moment, and it's when you see Jake and Elwood shot from behind and the spotlight is on them and they're dancing together during Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, and it just Landis is on fire, George Falsey is on, every, everybody is on on point. It's just a beautiful moment, and I uh, I absolutely love. Uh, everybody, I love the Cab Calloway moment before it. I love the Jailhouse Rock after. But everybody needs somebody, in- it's just great. I love it. Oh, well, and yours, your yours, yours for Blues Brothers. What's your pick? Uh,
0: actually, and it was one of the moments that really stood out to me when I was younger, and I've always remembered this moment. Uh, it was when the uh, <laughs> it's when Jake and Elwood start dancing back up to Aretha during Think. I
1: thought I was for sure you were going to say the church where he sees the light. I thought you were going to say that. Yeah.
0: Oh, that that's right up there, though. Like the idea, because I mean, I was raised Catholic. Uh, I am not anymore, obviously, but uh, I was raised Catholic and that was my first notion that church didn't have to be a bunch of sad white people moaning into a book.
1: I'll tell you, man, uh, one of my favorite things, and this is, I hope this doesn't sound like me patting myself on the back because this is something <laughs> that I'm just realizing now as we're doing this show is that. I am grateful that I was such a movie addict as a kid because I I got introduced to cultures and people that I never would have cared about otherwise. Like, does it seem strange that a nine-year-old boy was, like, obsessed with 9 to 5 and Blues Brothers? Those, like... But, like, these movies, like, put lessons in my head that I haven't thought about in 30 years, and I realized that, you know, watching stuff when you're young... That is inclusive and represents other people that aren't like you. Is so healthy. It is so important. It is. I'm grateful to my parents for letting me, you know, roam free, because I, you know uh, I would watch anything. And um, so yeah, I mean that's that. I think that's one of the most important things about nostalgia is you look back and go, you know what? I, I never thought that women in the workplace were strange because Nine to Five was my favorite movie for five years, and you know I. Uh, I didn't know many black kids growing up but I was I had I had a lot of respect for their culture and their music so when I got to high school and I had black friends I didn't feel weird I felt like I had kind of a some a, a common uh thing to talk about
0: Yeah well I mean I mean Ebert called these things empathy engines for a reason so I mean yeah like you know there's that's how that's how movies are supposed to work that's how stories are supposed to work they're supposed to allow you uh uh an in into a world that you normally wouldn't occupy in order to find all the common things that draw us together and allow us to build once the movie is over once the story is done you can take the lessons take the music take the feeling out of those fictions and apply them to your own life where
1: necessary and it just enriches everything we're getting deep yo what's your next what's your pick what's your pick all right, my next pick, when you see an older actor as a kid, we only knew Laurence Olivier from Clash of the Titans, and then and it wasn't until I got older that I realized, oh my God, Laurence Olivier was literally one of the finest stage screen actors of all time, uh, and I only knew him as the jazz singer's pop, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and for the longest time, I only knew Ennio Morricone from The Untouchables. Ah,
0: pick i that theme uh jumped out at me the first time i watched the movie
1: that opening credits yep. oh god it's so beautiful and it's got like the the, the 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 scene where sean connery is spoiler down the hall and and uh the scene with the, the baby carriage in the spoiler and oh my god there's so much this there, this entire score is just beautiful and what i love about its it's got like an attitude like the Al Capone theme has an attitude. The Elliot, the Elliot Ness has like a heroic swagger. The uh, the Jimmy, the uh, Sean Connery theme has like a stately classiness to it. Uh, it's just rousing, exciting. The stuff with Patricia Clarkson when the movie finally slows down gets a little bit sweet. The music there is very touching and warm. Uh, it's just a brilliant score. Love it. Love it. Love it. What I
0: love is that uh, Morricone is he's sort of, he's obviously channeling like old crime films of the thirties and forties, uh, because that's when this is set, uh, what set in the twenties, but, uh, but he's channeling that old sort of vibe that old now we're going to get you now see, that old gangster vibe, but he's doing it in a, in a, in a mode that he doesn't normally work in. He's using mostly electronic music in order to reinterpret these old sort of heroic cops and robbers themes. And I think that's what sort of makes it extra unique. Like that opening theme, is a monster unto itself. But when the movie, it's when the movie itself starts to get rolling and he starts using all these interesting, weird synth sounds to sort of call to mind uh, these old timey notions of good guys versus bad guys. That's what sort of gives the, the score it's, it's extra kick And that, and that idea of using uh, synths and electronic music to sort of call to mind uh, a previous time drafting off of your, uh, your choice, which took morricone the genius that is morricone using uh synthesizers uh and and computers and electronic music to sort of call to mind uh a time gone past uh my next pick is going to be uh, vangelis's blade runner score Which is interesting because uh, *Blade Runner* 2049 just opened as as the time we record this.
1: I haven't seen it yet, but, uh, I, but I, ha- w- you, I was going to ask you, but you haven't seen it yet. Uh, Hans Zimmer evokes, in my opinion. Vangelis very well I don't know other other fans may think it's a little much or not enough I I think he does a really cool job of setting his own score but also paying homage to that that brilliant Vangelis no
0: quote. yeah I, I made sure to listen to the soundtrack and again I haven't seen it in context so I don't know uh how it fits and in the movie what do you think of it overall uh I thought Wallfish and Zimmer and according to Zimmer in an interview he gave recently the score is actually mostly Benjamin Wallfish's oh okay um my friend Mike Russell, who's also a very well-known film critic and a cartoonist, uh, he, he described... And
1: what we call in the Hebrew language, a mensch. Love Mike Russell. Really nice guy.
0: Absolute mensch. He described the the Blade Runner score because he and I are, are score junkies and we'll frequently email each other about this stuff. Uh, he described the Blade Runner score as, you know those YouTube clips where someone takes a song and then slows it down 800%? It's... It sounds like they did that to the original Blade Runner score, um, and then just sort of rearranged the samples. Um, it's an interesting listen, but the thing that makes it uh, not as as inviting to me as the original score, which I just put on our list, is that there's a sense of uh, organicity. I don't even know if that's a word. It's not as organic as what Vangelis was doing. Uh, the Vangelis basically improvised the Blade Runner score uh in one go. Like they would send him scenes, he would get behind like his 15 different keyboards and synthesizers and just sort of whatever came to mind came out through his fingers and that's what ended up on the soundtrack. So even though he was using 100% electronic instruments most of the time, uh the score felt alive in this weird way, especially at the time. So the fact that he's trying to ape like f- film noir for an 80s film about a, a future in which everyone's leaving the planet and all that's left are rogue robots and low-life assholes like Rick Deckard, um, everything about that sort of coalesced into this This. Very unique whole, Uh, and that's and that soundtrack uh, reflects that every time. Every time you listen to that soundtrack, something new sort of jumps out, something vibrant and alive that you didn't notice before, but was always there and always hiding. It was just waiting to resonate with you, depending on the mood that you bring to both the movie and the soundtrack. And that's why I pick it because you can put on that Blade Runner score in however many different variations of it there are, almost as many as the movie itself,
1: uh, and and just. Find something new
0: every time. And there's something amazing about uh, that to me. My
1: favorite thing about the Blade Runner score is is the same thing that reminds me of, of... John. They're not similar in many ways at all, but I like them for the same reason that I like John Carpenter's best scores. Because it, it, it feels like, for example, the bit where Rick goes in and he's about to meet Pris and he's meeting... He's all William Sanderson's toys and everything. All that stuff and that score plays... Ominous, and then a little bit playful, and then a, a, mostly mysterious, and then there's this this otherworldly vibe that, like, like you said, resonates throughout all of it. You know, it's just I couldn't. I mean, you could say this about any great film, but man, I couldn't imagine if you said, "Hey, we 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 uh, we, we, we we rescored Blade Runner with uh, anybody, John Williams." I wouldn't be. Inter- I just wouldn't. I wouldn't be interested. It's like it is so. It is so part of that film's DNA. It's it's uh it's you know it is a large portion of why I love that movie so much. Good good pick, um and I think uh, you will enjoy Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I do not think it's better than the first film. I think it's a little bit a little bit fatty for its own good. I, I honestly think it might might this is the oldest you know film criticism gripe in the world. But I do think the film could be a half star better at twenty minutes shorter. But I was never bored. I just had a couple of moments, but it's gorgeous. I mean, it is just, even if you're a little bit like, all right, I get this plot point, you've already covered this, or get to the point, what you're looking at is so freaking beautiful. Uh, Denis Villeneuve did a brilliant job, brilliant job. I chose a hybrid. This album has both excerpts from Score and numerous songs by... Huey Lewis and the News. Bobby, what's the name of the film?
0: I'm going to guess that you picked uh, Alan Silvestri's soundtrack for Back to the Future. It's, it's in like a, a, a certain film fan's DNA, basically. It's right up there. And it seems sort of blasphemous to say it, but it is. It's right up there with, with Star Wars and Superman, to the point where people, for the longest time... Uh, just sort of automatically assume that John
1: Williams did it. Right, and, and it used to always bug me as a younger movie nerd. I'd be like, you know, not everything is James Horner and John Williams and, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, and then it's a, you realize it's a compliment. When somebody says Back to the Future was John Williams, what they're saying is that is such a, what a wonderful, iconic score that it must have been done. By John Williams. Well, and, and it, it also not.
0: it also didn't help that in the early days of uh, file sharing, when uh, youngins were first starting to figure out how to steal things on the internet, um, if anything was a movie theme, it was labeled John Williams. Sort of like if anything was like a heavy metal remix, Met- Metallica. I'll put quotes around it. Metallica okay. must have done it. That sort of thing, you know.
1: Right, and it, like we said uh, before, if if it's uh, if any parody song at all, Weird, weird Al. Yeah. Does it, could say, it could be, it could, the voice could be a 68-year-old a woman, and they'll still say it's weird out. Doesn't matter. So, but the,
0: but the Back to the Future soundtrack isn't just that Silvestri theme. It's one of those uh, really good examples of uh, pop music uh, being
1: expertly placed and interwoven into the score in, in just the right areas, right? Well, all right, so you grew up a little bit later than me. You were more of a 90s kid. What, when you heard Huey Lewis, did that, was that corny, or did that sound like an 80s band trying to sound like a 50s band?
0: Uh, it was all of those things. It was corny and an '80s band that was harnessing uh, the, the sort of uh, feel and style of doo-wop for their own bar band purposes.
1: Um, I'm not. Yeah, I, right. I mean, I was born in '77, so I'm more of an '80s. Oh, okay, you are. You're right. I thought you were a bit older, a bit younger than that. My bad. Uh, but no, the power of love, uh, divorced from the movie, uh, back in time, and the power of love are two of Huey Lewis's best songs, and the fact that they happen to be used so well. Uh, in this movie is great because it would really suck if it just turned out to be like this wonderful movie and you just hated that key song oh and it just everybody else likes it and it just doesn't work for you well and it's, but, it's funny
0: uh, that like at the time i think the production was just trying to find a, a very big pop act which they did because huey lewis in the news was a huge pop act in the mid 80s right
1: but what i was getting at is like that he was kind of like light like how do I explain it? He was very middle of the road, like right. It was almost cornball pop for I mean, my, it wasn't my parents' kind of band. It was for young people, but it was kind of that corny band for like for young people. They were the corny the cornier version of the cars is what Huey Lewis and the News were. No
0: that's that's a that's a really good way to put it. And for they're basically a middle of the road band that overachieved for a good 2 to 3 years and that seems like the perfect uh soundtrack for the life of Marty McFly who's a very middle of the road schmuck who overachieved thanks to uh Doc Brown's flying DeLorean. Yeah.
1: And and like you said his the 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 50s mixed with the 80s vibe really fit thematically with the movie because it obviously has one leg in the eighties and one leg in the fifties. So, uh, yeah, I love the, I love the theme. I love the score. Uh, I mean, it's got the, the, the soundtrack itself has some Eric Clapton, Lindsey Buckingham, edit James. There's some really interesting people. Of course, Marvin Barry, that whole, that whole bit uh, that's on there. So yeah, back to the future is my pick, Bob, what's your next?
0: Um, I'm kind of gonna draft off what you just did with, uh, regarding the, uh, The way the 80s – the 80s were the decade of taking films and almost using them as a selling point for their soundtracks.
1: Oh, yeah, like a a feature-length rock video sometimes.
0: Yeah, the the 80s was the decade where that relationship sort of got inverted uh, and movies were basically being greenlit uh, for their ability to sell soundtracks. Uh, and that's how you end up with films like a uh, Top Gun. Uh, I mean, that's that's overstating it for Top
1: Gun, right? No, no, it, but it is very. It was a it was its own giant industry when you had, particularly, a Bruckheimer or any kind of big Paramount release. You know, the the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack was a huge deal. That was a big big seller. Ghostbusters, yeah, yeah Ghostbusters, Flashdance. Uh, but your pick now is is based. I believe in a musical which makes it I think more interesting than just a, a, a traditional soundtrack. What is that film?
0: Oh man well I mean if I'm going to step into the waters that that you've been waiting in all show long with these uh, these pop compilations, uh, I'm gonna go straight to the source to one of the single best musicians that ever lived not just in the 80s but ever lived period uh, and I'm going straight to purple rain.
1: Now, I, I know that you are a giant Prince fan. You have mentioned it to me on more than one occasion. I was never a huge fan of Purple Rain, and I still i am hesitant to say, but I got to be honest, not a huge fan of the movie. I will say that the album is without question one of the best albums of the entire decade. That I mean, it's amazing. Yeah.
0: I love that album. I wouldn't even consider it like my top five Prince albums. Uh, I'm one of those, you know, pretentious music snobs. So like it, it's obviously too big for me to put on my very finely curated uh, representative right. of my. Uh, it's like
1: why a U2 fan would, ne- would never put Rattle and Hum on their list. It's like, oh, my God, that's like your greatest hits and cover band album. No, but I, I love the
0: album uh, and I think it's. Absolutely better than the movie that accompanies it. That movie is not very good. Uh, Prince is a dick in it. Uh, it's a very mm-hmm. mean-spirited sort of film. I mean, And that was, sort of, that was sort of Prince's sense of humor anyway. It was kind of mean-spirited. You look back at his life, uh, the, the songs that he wrote that had jokes within them, those jokes were always at someone's expense. Uh, he he mm-hmm. typically, his whole sense of humor was, I'm going to pick on you, and eventually you're going to laugh in spite of yourself anyway. Um, and that's sort of how Prince rolled comedically. Uh, Purple Rain doesn't work very well on that level because Prince is just sort of a, a dour, mean spirited little elf the entire movie long. The reason Purple Rain works as a film is mostly uh, the musical bits because, of course, they're
1: genius uh, and the time they steal they steal Act Three and and uh, as as I've heard you say, uh, Prince kind of noticed that he stole some of their thunder in the at the uh, in the big finale of Purple Rain.
0: Oh yeah, no, yeah, there was a there were mild controversies. I don't know how, you know, true they were, how much of it was pumped up due to the fandom sort of circulating gossip amongst itself. But yeah, in the mid eighties, uh, word was Prince started to get a little bit insecure that his uh, his funk creation, the time, was upstaging him on tours around the country. And so like he sort of very quietly tried to get them removed from his own shows so that his own funk music wouldn't upstage him when we want he when he wanted to be a <laughs> pop rock superstar on stage. I mean, and so much a purple Rain. is just him saying, look, I see what you guys are doing on the pop charts. I see you Huey Lewis. I see you Bob Seger. I see you Michael Jackson. Uh, Guess what? I can do that whenever I want, however I want, two times better than you could at your best day. And then he just drops the album and uh, he's 100% absolutely. Yeah,
1: without the film the the album would still be uh, you know, triple platinum piece of genius. Bob, let, since you are a Prince expert, before we move on to my next pick, why don't you briefly opine on the quality or relative lack thereof of Prince's Batman score? Oh,
0: wow. Yeah, I, I was not going to put that one on the list. I do not like the the Batman score. It's just basically a collection of, of B-sides and, and things Prince wrote and dashed off real quick. And granted, when even when Prince is dashing off songs, uh, there's still top tier pop, uh, and definite top tier funk. But, uh, that always seemed to me like something that just got thrown together for a quick paycheck. Right, right.
1: They already had Elfman, right. Putting together one, I think one of Elfman's best scores. And then, um, and then they're like, Hmm, who can we get to fill in like eight, six or seven tracks on this album that'll help us sell legitimately a million more copies. And there's some pretty cool stuff on the, I don't love the score or that, that, that album overall, but like bad dance. I had that single. Oh, I did. electric chair
0: and party man are the two songs from that soundtrack that uh i end up going back to uh bat right, dance well, I, bat dance i just don't touch that seems to me like uh a, a big
1: peek into how prince plays with new toys i don't think every great artist has like across their career one or four or seven of those just cringeworthy minor sellout moments you know what i mean where it's just like you wrote a crappy song for a movie that didn't really fit But it sold a lot of copies and, you know, you moved on to much, much better stuff. And like I look at "Bat dance like like a novelty song to Prince's career.
0: (laughs) And I think it's cool that you brought up the uh, the Batman soundtrack uh, period, because I don't think it's going to show up on either of our lists. But we should mention that uh, Danny Elfman, uh, his work on the Batman soundtrack, uh, that's. That stuff is legendary. I mean, people are still sort of uh, measuring themselves against what Elfman did, and that might be one of Elfman's best scores, if not his best. yeah, I think
1: virtually every uh, superhero movie from, like, when the resurgence with Blade and the first X-Men, all throughout the when when Marvel had farmed out all their product to different studios, and then uh, DC had started, uh, and they were getting smaller, independent, all of them looked at Elfman's score. Every one of those movies, in some way, uh, you know, used Elfman's score as a jumping off point because that's the modern template for uh, superhero scores. It's
0: great. Elfman sort of crystallized uh, his own style and, and perfected it on that soundtrack. He's, he's gone back to the sort of weird, uh, I don't know, self-parody of himself. Uh, I have a friend of mine who calls it Gnome Hop. Uh, that's the style of music that Danny Elfman is known for composing. And he calls it Gnome Hop because it doesn't matter what theme, whether it's it's Beetlejuice, uh, hell, it could be Big Fish, uh, at some point on the score, you're going to have a cue that goes, Gnome Hop, Gnome Hop, Gnome Hop, Gnome Hop, Gnome Hop, Gnome Hop, Gnome Hop. <laughs>
1: Did you have that, uh, I forget the name of it, I had it on a, a cassette, but it was like an album of like his first 12 or 14 major themes, uh, like uh, themes to play in the dark or something like that. It was just a... Uh, it was great it was great alright so let's move on I am now going to go with a traditional score that uh, evokes my all time favorite movie it also uh, cherry picks from some of the great military action scores and it also forges some new ground it is James Horner's brilliant, brilliant. score for Aliens Oh man <laughs>
0: That's a great score, uh, because it's sort of it's sort of like the uh the pinnacle. Like we were just talking about with Elfman. It's sort of like the pinnacle of Horner's uh early scoring career. Like he puts all the pieces together perfectly. Now, yes, uh there are a lot of score nerds listening right now who know that Aliens was basically built off the back of Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, which is basically built off of Battle Beyond the Stars. Horner kept going back to his old stuff and then sort of uh, you know, reformulating it and repurposing it for the new movie that he'd been you know he, he had it thrown into his lap by James Cameron and was like you've got i don't know 6 weeks maybe 3 weeks who knows crank me out a score that I'm going to yell
1: at yeah. you for it all composers have that you know you can you know if you're a real film f- score buff uh, you can spot a Danny Elfman or Hans Zimmer you can spot that after 10 or 12 or 14 seconds uh and and you, you know you kind of got that uh, with um with Horner like oh I get it yeah that's a. I I get that little that little uh, arrangement of eight notes or that little uh, cymbal crash or that sounds exactly like something I've heard Horner do before, but he was just so damn good at it. It was like, it would be like a comedian reshaping a joke every 10 years and going, wait, I think it's a little funnier now, you know? And I love, I love Horner. And with, with, with the untouchables, this and the untouchables were the two albums that made me realize, oh, I don't just like songs in movies. I really like movie music. I was about to say was
0: this one of those albums where you sort of found yourself surprised that you kept like reaching over
1: to the to the record player or the CD player uh uh uh-uh, uh uh-uh, I had a large boombox uh, and it was on top of a shelf and I had one of those uh, like it's probably the size of a microwave that was uh, that 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 uh, flat thing that held what 60 or 85 cassettes and it had it looked like that like wood stain on it and everything I think I had two I think I had two of those actually Oh, yeah, that's a, very, a, that's a
0: very acute nostalgic memory for me, the the idea of buying furniture that more or less looks like a wood-paneled station wagon to hold all of your tapes.
1: Oh, oh, oh all right, here. You want a very n- minor but very potent nostalgia bomb? How about this, Bob? You put all your cassettes in one of those boxes, and then you come home with a new album by the B-52s. Now you have to move every single cassette down one space because you want the B-52s to be under B. Uh, so yeah, yeah. The, the aliens was one that I would put on my Walkman. And if I was playing a game on my computer or, or riding of home on my bike from somewhere, I, I used to love the alien score. It's it, not just the big rousing stuff at the end with Bishop, but I love all of it. I think it's, uh, Easily one of the best scores of the decade.
0: Oh, yeah. No, Bishop's Countdown was where uh, Horner put together all those those weird, freaky noises, plus
1: all those militaristic drums just driving the action. Oh, and crescendo on top of crescendo on top. It's like, if, I mean, if you really sit down and listen to Bishop's Countdown and really, like, focus on it, it's exhausting. It feels like you just ran through the jungle. <laughs> no,
0: you expect your house to cave in on you uh, and Lance Henriksen if you're lucky at the very last second to fly over in a helicopter and pull you up himself. Like that's oh, how that track. The quieter
1: moments, you know, the the earlier bits where they're like, uh, uh, you know, the, the very early stuff where they're uh, searching the the shuttle for her. Well, uh, then all the, the the subtle militaristic stuff with the um with the Marines on the ship, which is like you get these little clacks, these little little uh, little notes on the that remind you, hey, these are soldiers. There's action to come but mostly it's all just interesting then they land on the planet and you get that mysterious sci-fi wonder of oh what's going on it's very mysterious and ominous we don't know and then once all hell breaks loose that score is a roller coaster it's wonderful
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, my pick is actually going to, uh, once again, draft off uh, one of your great picks. Uh, I'm going to move from the sort of militaristic, driving masculine sound uh, that you were talking about with Aliens, which is funny considering Aliens is entirely about a mother kicking ass to save her adopted child essentially. Uh, and I am going to, uh, for my next pick, and my last pick actually, one of the most beefy titanic monstrous behemoth music scores of all time not just the 80s but of all time a score that if you listen to it puts hair on your chest and actually the hair on your chest grows little biceps and those biceps grow hair oh my god they if you say Beetlemania, i'm gonna be so angry <laughs> i'm picking basil paul Durs score for conan the barbarian uh. That score is amazing, beauty. and not just because when it decides it wants to drop the hammer, it seriously drops the hammer, and you start like mm-hmm. just you start peeing ground beef. That's how. Jack yeah, Oh, up- it's
1: funny you say that because I was gonna say Conan the Barbarian is a thick, salty delicious steak with steak sauce or whatever you want to put on it to make it succulent and 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 red and oh, you want to sink your teeth into it i absolutely love the score not just that maiden rousing with all the percussion not just that but it has a lot of like sweeping wondrous fantasy type uh, cues and tracks um and uh it really is a, a really great compliment to the uh to the piece, I, I, I shudder to think of what Conan the Barbarian would look like if it if the score didn't come out quite so uh, bombastic. Oh yeah, well, and <laughs> and it's also that
0: uh, Paul Doris knows that yes, you need those drums, yes, you need those anvils uh, to sort of sell the idea that this. This monster of a man is just going to wreak havoc, uh, you know he's going to tell his god to go to fucking hell, like that's the kind of guy that Conan is, so you need that that muscle, but he also knows that like the best heavy metal, which is what the score is, it's symphonic heavy metal, the best heavy metal is still melody based, you might be you know, tuned in to the riffs uh, you might be tuned in to the, to the drop D guitar tuning, you might be tuned in to the double bass drums, but you still need, even if it's just simple hell you still need a melody to carry you and cut through all that noise and Polidorus is so good with melody in Conan the Barbarian that even when he takes away you know the the orchestra that he's kicking into your lap with the force of a thousand trucks even when he takes away most of those instruments and just leaves you with like the woodwinds and light strings that melody is still there and it's still pushing you along when he decides to bring that orchestra back and just drop it on your head um, it packs all the more punch because every everything's just all of a sudden jacked up to 11, 12, 13 uh, and Crom
1: yeah. wills and it, that your blood it really is angry adds to the unreal nature of the movie. You know, it, it has this gigantic score. You don't for a second this music doesn't belong in the real world. This is a fantasy world in every way and it it really is uh, it is one of the best marriages of 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 score and fantasy film. I I mean, Conan is one of the best, you know, quote-unquote swords and sandals or whatever you want to call the subgenre of adventure that covers, you know, uh, wizards, warriors, dragons, dungeons, what have you. It's a great movie, and this is a brilliant score. It's a good choice. And like you said, if you have a young boy, say like 11 or 12, and you're wondering, I wonder when my son will hit that puberty area. (laughs) Put this movie on and and see if, like, talk to him two hours later and his voice might sound like that.
0: You won't even have to check his voice. Basically, see if a, f- a pair of fur-lined boots has sprouted over his feet while he's been watching and you will know that it has worked on
1: him correctly. Like, uh, Of course, that is not to say in any way that women would not love this score and or this movie, just that it is very testosterone-y. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that men respond to this film so much. Uh, I happen to know for a fact, my sister watched all this stuff with me when I was a kid. She loved Conan, Sword and the Sorcerer. She loved all that. Oh, Beastmaster, all that stuff. I mean, I mean, it's Milius and it's Oliver Stone. I mean, of course,
0: it's yeah. it's going to be a little bit more male-focused. Um, it's Milius and Oliver Stone in the early 80s with Arnold Schwarzenegger bringing to life one of Robert E. Howard's
1: uh, superhuman <laughs> right. he It's going to be male-focused. And the movie might as well be called... Sack full of balls. (laughs) All right. No, what is your last pick, Scott? On that note, I'm going to cheat on this final pick because this is our podcast. I make the rules, and I am going to pay homage to a brilliant filmmaker who had an unbelievable touch for scores and soundtracks in particular. And that is the late, great Chicago genius, John Hughes, who, uh, by his own hand, by, by most accounts, put together the soundtracks for... Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful, which is, oddly enough, my very favorite. If if you want to hear a wonderful soundtrack, pick up Some Kind of Wonderful. Uh, Bob, I'll tell you, a uh, John Hughes movie was always kind of a, a, a thrill for me and my friends. We were movie geeks, and we would horror, horror movies, action movies, any sequels we were excited for. But there was something a little bit quietly exciting about a John Hughes movie. Like, oh, here's here's something that, you know... Not Ghostbusters Two. It's not, uh, you know, something crazy. It's oh, this one's for us. This is a, a John Hughes movie. And he was so great at these soundtracks. Give me an anecdote or two about your favorite John Hughes soundtrack. Oh man! Well, I mean, first I want to mention uh, the
0: swerve that you very expertly pulled off. We were we were playing in He-Man land for a while there, and then you just spun the wheel, and suddenly we're in sensitive-ass John Hughes territory with you know uh, Otis Redding on the on the tape deck. Uh, I what I really
1: loved about John Hughes is that. The idea of... Uh... Oh, she's having a baby. Sorry. I wanted to make sure I got them all in the list, in one simple list for our listeners. But the She's Having a Baby soundtrack is also amazing, and that is the soundtrack that introduced me to Kate Bush. And I would not, I don't think I might have not heard of Kate Bush for another 5, 8, 12 years were it not for John Hughes.
0: The thing with John Hughes that I've always appreciated is that the idea of pop song as a film score uh, really got solidified by uh, George Lucas uh, with American Graffiti. He sort of put the the pin in that idea. He was like, boom, this is what it looks like. Yeah, you,
1: the jukebox Ju- do- approach
0: kind of. Yeah, yeah. And, and and John Hughes, out of any other filmmaker, was the only other one who sort of took that ball and ran with it as well. Um, and that's a huge reason why his movies work like they do. Um, he sort of took that lesson from American Graffiti, took it to heart and started writing movies around it. And he's obviously a, a vastly better writer than George Lucas is. So his looks at uh, American teenage culture in the 80s uh, packed just that more punch. He's a better mixtape and he's a better writer and that carries a lot of his films like for me uh i mean it's it's very cliche but how can it not be uh y- uh oh yeah by yellow in ferris oh, bueller's yeah. day off like that pull, that, part of it, that pick is just it's great that that song I was is ferris bueller
1: with that song and uh put a pin in that what i find really interesting is not only did john hughes have a great year for catchy or or uh bittersweet or tragic or poppy songs but a lot of the songs feel like part of the screenplay they feel like he like he found that the lyrics not only did the music fit but it it really felt like the in in many cases the lyrics fit like listen to the lyrics to pretty and pink that fits that movie um and and uh my favorite my favorite little trivia bits about the john hughes so we rattled them off right they were there were 16 candles breakfast club weird science Ferris Bueller, she, uh, she's uh, pretty in pink, some kind of wonderful, she's having a baby. Oh, of course, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, not not a teen film, also has an amazing soundtrack. But of all those films that all have particularly great sa- soundtracks full of songs, the only one that never got an official album was Ferris Bueller. If you wanted, oh yeah, I went out and got it on a 12-inch single. No laughing, 12-inch single means a large record. Um, <laughs> but I know you're you were a DJ, so you had the 12-inch single of... Bow, bow, chick, chicka, chicka. Oh, yeah. I
0: mean, I mean and a whole lot of people don't even really know that the name of the song is Oh Yeah. For, so, for like, so like far yellow. as they, Yeah, so far as they're concerned, that song is just bow, bow. Like, it might as well just be called <laughs> bow, bow, because that's... And all you have to do is say bow, bow in a room full of movie fans, and someone within half a second is going to go chick, chicka,
1: chicka. Yeah, it's a great... And it, 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 it has like a a very freewheeling, like, play-along vibe, and it fits the Ferris Bueller character. It fits the all-in-one-day kind of uh, energetic vibe of the movie. And I think, you know, John Hughes could have picked a thousand different songs that were up-tempo and energetic, but that feels like... And they were new. Like, these were songs that were new to American teenagers. You know, I guarantee you, when I heard this woman's work on She's Having a Baby, I went, oh, my God, what a voice. And meanwhile, people in Britain 10 years ago knew that. I didn't, you know, like thank you, John Hughes. I didn't. There was psychedelic furs. I don't think I ever would have heard of them were it not for Pretty in Pink. There's, there's some great stuff. Dig up all those soundtracks if you just want to get uh, an earnest, legitimate taste of the '80s. I'm not saying every single song is great but I would say that every one of those soundtracks is at least very good.
0: Well, and I think we put together a pretty good list here. Uh, I think you yes. and I teamed oh, up and, and put, yeah, we put together a pretty essential list of what the eighties sounded like and and what you should look at and, and pour into your head. And then of course, like you and I have both done with many of our picks uh, over this, over this show, uh, use that as a jumping off point, go searching for more stuff. Don't just be satisfied okay. with having that one uh, new album in your collection. Use that as a, springboard to go find more stuff and and, and pull it yep. into your sphere
1: if uh and also since we barely scratched the surface of this uh once drew is back up on his feet bob we're gonna have you back for another bonus episode so drew can contribute five or ten of his own picks and and i can also contribute five more picks because I said the rules mean nothing in this dimension this is the, the weinberg mcweeney roberts zone and we can do what we want as long as we get permission from nancy allen amanda Wiss and uh, Steven D'Souza.
0: Well, and what I like is the idea of, when we revisit this, maybe not going back to composers, or maybe not picking full soundtracks, but sort of grabbing individual themes, because uh, that sort of opens the, the game up even more. Like, you know, the theme to Police Academy,
1: the theme to- Oh, uh, no, you don't- Oh, the last, Police Academy theme is great. Oh, yeah, great, the theme, great theme to The Last but Starfighter. not steal too many, okay. because I want Drew to listen to this episode and then concoct his own five, mm-hmm. and if we just keep throwing out too many, he won't have any left. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to steal his thunder. We miss you, Drew. Bob, thank you for sitting in. I think that I will eventually be speaking for, oh my God, our listenership when I say uh, we would like to have you back on future bonus episodes to uh, opine on things related to film and or music.
0: Well, thank you for uh, for letting me uh, fill in for Drew. That's huge shoes to fill. Hopefully he gets better fast, so this does not have to happen again. <laughs> um, and I want to thank everyone for uh, contributing to the Patreon. That's how you're hearing us right now. Uh, and please spread the word uh, and try and get other people to pitch in, like minimum, a dollar a month. Uh, so they can hear some of the really good stuff. I've seen people on Twitter like, man, I wish the show was every week. And I'm like, eh, it is every week. If you want to pitch in minimum $1 a month uh, to to become part of the 80s all over patreon uh so please uh try and spread the word try and get more people on board you guys are the reason the show still pushes ahead and you are the ones pushing us ahead you are the fuel for the mighty engine that is 80s all over as we try to complete this five-year mission
1: yep thanks
0: all